Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. This is New Books and National Security, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm Beth Windish. I'm joined by Brian Jackson, one of the authors of the book Practical Terrorism Prevention, Reexamining U.S. National Approaches to Addressing the Threat of Ideologically Motivated Violence. Brian Jackson is a senior physical scientist at the RAND Corporation. His research focuses on homeland security, criminal justice, and emergency preparedness. Brian received his master's in science, technology, and public policy from the George Washington University and his PhD in bioinorganic chemistry from the California Institute of Technology. Brian, welcome to the show. Thanks very much. This book is a culmination of research that was sponsored by DHS and performed through the Homeland Security Operational Analysis Center at RAND. Can you tell us about how this project got started? Yeah, certainly. So the the Homeland Security Operational Analysis Center, or HSOAC, as as it's called in in acronym speak from D.C., is is an analytical uh, organization supporting DHS. And so we do work related to high-level strategic planning, helping DHS um, measure effectiveness and, and other issues. And so this project was a result of um, people in DHS's policy shop wanting to take a fresh look at national efforts at terrorism prevention. So that includes activities that were formerly captured under the terms countering violent extremism and sort of look back, you know, assess what the country had done, think about what was effective, and, and then look forward to, to come up with options uh, that where the federal government could strengthen a U.S. national capacity in this area going forward. So it was a very broad-based study and, and one where we could really look fundamentally at this policy area and ask what worked um, and how things could work better going forward. Can you tell us about your research process? You know, where did you go and who did you talk to? Yeah, certainly. So um, this is a policy area that um, there has been a lot written on. And so we really wanted to take advantage of that. So, so like, like good researchers, there was a very substantial sort of review of the literature and trying to you know, sort of stand on the shoulders of those who had come before. Um, but the, the real heart of the work was um, a set of interviews where we did a set of interviews at, at the national level, sort of, you know, in Washington, in federal agencies, people in federal agencies who are currently involved in this policy space, um, folks who had been in the past, um, people from other think tanks that had sort of thought this through and, and had uh, expertise on it. And then we sort of went from the, the national level to the implementation level, because we really wanted to sort of understand this policy space from the perspective both of the communities that would be, you know, it's intended to help and intended to protect uh, the implementing organizations at the state and local level, which is really sort of, you know, where the rubber meets the road on these kind of policies, you know, sort of the issues that they face implementing these. So we went to five cities around the country. We went to uh, Los Angeles, uh, Minneapolis, Boston, Denver, and Houston. And in each of those areas, we talked to um, people in government, law enforcement organizations, community groups, 
uh, social services agencies, sometimes folks in the in the mental health or or medical communities, and uh, sort of civil society organizations, because we really wanted to understand kind of the range of what was being done nationally, but also the range of the the challenges and the the constraints that affected what what would work nationally. In that outreach process, we weren't able to talk to everybody that we wanted to. And I think that this is sort of an important point to make about this policy area. This is a policy area that's very controversial um, that I'm, I'm sure we will talk more about. And so there were some organizations, both at the at the national level and in, in localities that um, you know, weren't comfortable sort of talking about terrorism prevention or, or countering violent extremism um, you know, in, in sort of this context. Um, but even then, we tried to reflect um, to the extent that we could sort of their sort of views and equities from you know, things that had been published, public statements and so on, because we really wanted this to, to try to you know, sort of look at the full range of views and the full range of concerns to, to try to get to the best outcome. Other pieces, we, we did some international case studies to try to learn from, from other countries. And we, we did threat analysis you know, to, to try to set up uh, an understanding of kind of the domestic um, terrorist threat environment, because, of course, that's the, the problem that, that these policies are intended to solve. And so how do you define terrorism and why is the international versus domestic context of terrorism important to understand? So trained as an academic, I, I, I go to the, you know, the academic definition of terrorism as you know, violence or the threat of violence that's intended to you know, frighten or coerce people for um, you know, political aims um, you know, to try to shape you know, their choices, uh, you know, shape their behavior. Um, obviously, terrorism comes from a wide range of uh, ideological sources. So, you know, post 9-11, um, you know, there has been a whole lot of focus in the, in the country about terrorism inspired by global jihadist or Islamist causes. Um, but, of course, terrorism has been an issue in the United States for, uh, you know, decades, um, going back to the 1970s, which is sort of the, the dawn of the modern era of terrorism, where we've had, you know, terrorism coming from, you know, sort of white supremacist uh, issues, sort of left wing uh, causes, environmental causes, and so on. And so, uh, you know, it, 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 it's the violence or the threat of violence that, that comes from a, you know, a, a source or a desire to shape people's behavior. The domestic versus international distinction is something that, you know, comes out of uh, the way that laws have been written in the U.S. about this and, and sort of the, you know, the fact that we think differently about, you know, things that come from outside the border um, and, and, and things that come from inside. So there are different authorities associated with, you know, terrorism, uh, even terrorism, you know, that is inspired inside the country from uh, international causes. So there's a material support charge uh, for somebody who is supporting a, a designated foreign terrorist organization, you know, and that support can, you know, fall across a wide range. When we're talking about purely domestic, you know, the concerns about infringing on constitutional rights, you know, freedom of speech, freedom of association, um, you know, the fact that, you know, they're, uh, you know, how, how people define groups as terrorist or not terrorist groups varies. Um, and so there's a sort of less, uh, sort of fewer legal tools um, for terrorism that is, you know, sort of purely from a domestic origin. And that's actually important because it gets to some of the, the issues of sort of trust associated with um, terrorism prevention efforts. You know, it's very easy for, 
the government to label, you know, when somebody is arrested and charged for supporting Al Qaeda or, or ISIL, you know, uh, them as a terrorist, because there is an international you know, sort of material support charge and a designated foreign terrorist organization. And so, you know, they're, they're called a terrorist from the beginning. Um, that, that's a, a harder thing, you know, for somebody that might be, um, you know, inspired by, you know, domestic, you know, racist causes or, um, you know, anti-government causes. Um, and so that's actually one thing that, you know, we, we even heard in our, in our, uh, our uh, uh, research for this, uh, you know, talking to community groups that sort of the, the fact that the, the, ch- the differences in those definitions and the laws associated with it and that what that means for how people talk about terrorism is something that, you know, undermines trust and, 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 and uh, makes different communities view that, you know, they're being treated differently than others with respect to these programs. Practical terrorism prevention looks at how the federal government can be most effective in preventing terrorism in the U.S., and it covers a lot of ground. The recommendations center around two principal concepts. One defines the type of people who are vulnerable to extremism and the smaller subsets of actors that may be involved in terrorism. The other concept you discuss is time-based, relating to the phases of potential intervention based on an individual's actions. Can you talk about these frameworks? Certainly. Yeah. So one of the challenges about terrorism prevention as a policy area is that it covers a whole lot of different policies that have sort of different intended effects. And so we were trying to sort of break down those options into a, a you know, sort of a set of categories where we could you know, sort of think about what had been done and you know, sort of think about the options going forward. And so the first way we did this were you know, sort of these, these three sets of populations. Um, you know, the first we you know thought about you know, a, a population at potential risk of radicalization, and if you're thinking about all ideologies and you know and all you know sort of possible sources of terrorism, you know the broadest way that you could think about that is that that could be the entire population of the country. Um, you know, in reality, it's probably smaller than that, but it's you know it's not just you know sort of one you know ethnic community or one you know sort of you know sort of people with one set of beliefs, and. Because that is a you know a very big group, um, you know that you know sort of cues up policy options that are that are very broad, which we'll we'll sort of get back to when we talk about the phases of policy options. The second group um, is you know sort of a, a middle group that that we you know we call you know sort of individuals at risk of radicalizing to violence, and you know I use that terminology. Um, you know, very intentionally. And in in fact, it's a terminology that we got from, you know, one of the law enforcement organizations that we interviewed where, you know, this is a group of people that, you know, may have been, you know, browsing extremist websites, you know, and, and, and so you could sort of think of them as, you know, kind of more radical of thought. Um, It may be people who are, you know, sort of violent people by nature and are searching for, you know, a justification for their violence. Um, but, you know, sort of this this middle group is is a tough one to get your hands around because, you know, there are people who whose behavior might make them look like a threat. You know, somebody who spends a lot of time on on ISIL websites or white supremacist websites. Um, but we don't have certainty that that person actually is going to, you know, go on to commit an act of violence. And so the, we used a sort of a, 
a language in here, you know, that you would for, you know, thinking about, you know, somebody who's, you know, designing a technological detector, you know, true positives versus false positives, you know, people who, whose behavior might suggest they're a threat, who go on to do something versus ones who might not look that different, but, you know, will actually never go on to do anything dangerous to anybody. And, you know, the, the real challenge for policy, you know, for this central group is, it, it is dealing with that uncertainty because you don't want, you know, sort of policies here to sort of push people who never would have done anything, you know, further. Um, but you definitely want to be able to respond to the folks who are real threats. And then the third group um, is, you know, folks who, who have made that transition to either violence or direct support of violence, you know, really folks who have done things that have broken the law, are involved in the criminal justice system, um, and, you know, as a result are, um, you know, are, are, are either in the process of being prosecuted or, or, or incarcerated or, you know, when they've completed their terms, uh, you know, being released uh, back into the community. Um, at each of these steps, you're talking, you know, many smaller numbers of people. And so, you know, sort of the scope of, of each of those populations is very, is very different. But they queue up sort of different are different phases of policy. So the, the, the early phase options for terrorism prevention, you know, are things that are very broad. You know, you know, again, we're talking about sort of big populations here. So these are things like, you know, community education efforts, um, you know, very broad-based um, interventions um, uh, in, in, to increase community resilience. So, you know, things that you might do for things like gang violence reduction, you know, sort of jobs programs, youth programs, um, economic development programs, but you know, sort of what, what what's in common for these are there there are things that would have an effect over you know a large number of people, um, but um, you know may or may not actually be that specific to the threat of you know terrorism and ideological violence. For the middle group, which you know, so we call our middle phase, um, you know, these are programs that you know are trying to respond to this you know smaller set of people whose behavior suggests that they might be threats. But do so in a way where um, you know we're, we're cognizant of the fact that we could be wrong. Um, and so these are things like um, you know trying to you know sort of detect and refer these people. You know, so the, you know this is sort of the things like you talk about you know education of of uh, uh, school you know teachers and staff. Um, you know to pay attention if you know if a kid is um, you know sort of. Going into you know sort of things like hate speech or you know browsing extremist websites on the school computer, but but referring them you know not necessarily to law enforcement but to intervention programs of you know counseling and um, uh, you know sort of other kinds of uh, you know sort of support to try to steer them back on a path that you know quite frankly will be better for them and better for everyone else if they don't you know progress towards doing violent things, and then. The policies, the late stage policies aimed at the last group of, of folks who've already been, been involved in the criminal justice system, you know, here we're into, a, into a, 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 an area where we're really focused on recidivism. You know, you know, whether that person you know, became involved in, you know, uh, in, in the justice system because of something like material support or whether they were you know, planning and you know, uh, you know, potentially attempting to carry out an attack, um, when they complete their sentence um, and are released, you know, we want to make sure that, you know, we don't have them going back to, you know, violence or, or supportive violence. And so that, that includes programming, you know, in, in prison. Um, and it includes the, you know, sort of community corrections, probation and parole kind of programming, 
um, that they would uh, you know, have to participate in after their release. And again, here, there's some commonality. You know, I talked at the early stage of you know, commonality with, with sort of gang interventions. Here, there's commonality with you know, the recidivism reduction activity that um, you know, supports other people who you know, are released from prison. Um, you know, as a result of potentially violent offenses. So there, you know, the, the most terrorism and ideological violence specific elements are in the middle. And then, you know, on, on, on the early phase and the late phase, you have, uh, you know, policies where there are both things to be learned and things to be drawn on from, you know, other policy areas as well. There's been a lot of work looking for early indicators of potential radicalization or warning signs of potential terrorist activities. And your research makes a clear point that there are no unambiguous indicators of future violent behavior. And because of the constitutional protections we all enjoy, there are limitations on what can be done before an individual actually commits violence. In that context, what early interventions are useful to prevent terrorism given these limitations? Well, yeah, I mean, this is one of the most difficult issues associated with, you know, terrorism prevention and, you know, countering violent extremism programs. Um, it, the early stage indicators um, are, are very ambiguous. I mean, and, and, and uh, you know, individuals from law enforcement who do threat assessment, uh, you know, in other areas, you know, make similar points. You know, people who look like threats often, often aren't, and people who are threats sometimes don't look like them. And so the, the issue here is, how do you intervene in a way where being wrong is, um, you know, is not so damaging to the individual and so damaging to the, you know, the community from which that individual comes that, you know, you end up doing, you know, as much harm as good. I mean, this is, this is one of the big pushbacks on, um, these programs that have come from the civil society side is, you know, essentially you're, risking policing speech and, you know, policing free thought. Um, and, uh, and if there aren't intervention programs that are counseling based that are seeking to be non-stigmatizing, um, the, the, the risk there is that that becomes a conveyor belt where people end up, you know, being prosecuted and going into the criminal justice system, um, because there aren't other options to respond. And so the, to respond and to intervene productively here, it's really a, a, a program design challenge. And that challenge is how do you connect a, a youth? I mean, frequently a youth, not always, but you know, sort of in some ways the easier situation is when it's a youth whose you know, sort of parents can be involved in you know, sort of getting them into, into supportive programming, who you know, looks like they're going down the wrong path to whatever kinds of counseling and support, um, you know, will help turn them around. And so, you know, that can include things like religious counseling. If, if you're talking about, um, you know, uh, ideological violence from religion, it can, it can be, you know, things like job counseling, you know, educational related counseling, part of what is, you know, sort of alienating, um, you know, the, the, the youth is, you know, sort of their activities in school and so on. Um, and, the, the involvement of different actors and to do that well, it requires the involvement of, of actors from across many disciplines and many organizations. So I had a, a religious leader that we interviewed, you know, sort of look at me and sort of say, you know, okay, um, it would be totally inappropriate 
for the federal government to come to a youth in my community and telling, tell him that he was believing wrong about his religion. But I'm his religious leader. His parent is his parent. Telling him he's believing wrong is actually part of our job. And so in that case, the, the goal then is, you know, how do you have a program that religious organizations, you know, are comfortable participating in? Um, you know, another person, you know, sort of came from the perspective of, you know, sort of thinking about the involvement of crim criminal justice and saying, well, okay, um, you know, here we have a kid who, who may not do anything wrong. I don't want to refer him to something where I know that, you know, the police are there taking notes. Um, and, you know, and his name's going to go into a file somewhere, you know, when, even if we're successful turning him around and he becomes a model citizen, um, you know, that, that record may follow him in, in ways and, and stigmatize him in ways, stigmatize the community, um, you know, as a result of, you know, coming out. And so, you know, there the answer was, you know, sort of figuring out privacy protections in this area where, you know, law enforcement, you know, was connected enough to the intervention program that if there was a problem, they could be brought in easily, um, but was insulated enough that, you know, social services organizations with their, you know, sort of medical approach to, you know, patient um, privacy and patient protection and community groups and their concerns about, you know, stigmatizing individuals were all sort of taken into account in the way that the program was designed. Um, you know, as you can tell, you know, this is a, this is a tough, tough thing to, to, to implement. Um, and in fact, you know, it, it, in, in our visits to cities, there were probably only, you know, two or three cases where, um, you know, we talked to programs that really had, had, had sort of figured this out and, and, and had worked through it, um, you know, to, to really negotiate the fact that these early stage intervention programs, you know, to reflect, you know, the, the, the legitimate, you know, sort of individual rights concerns, but also reflect you know, law enforcement and public safety concerns and responsibilities about protecting the community, you know, could could coexist and be managed in a, in an effort um, to, uh, you know, to be able to respond. And I should make the point that this isn't just a problem for ideological violence and terrorism, although it's, it's more serious because, you know, terrorism has a has a stigma, you know, all its own and, a, and, a, and an import all its own. But, you know, these same sort of challenges affect programs for intervening, you know, for potential school violence and, you know, other kinds of, you know, targeted violence. In some ways, there's a value in solving this challenge, you know, not just for thinking about terrorism, but for thinking about other concerns, too. A couple of those anecdotes really lead into my next question, where your research points to the most effective role for federal government being really to enable others to do terrorism prevention work. Can you talk about the role of federal government more and, and how you looked at that? Oh, absolutely. I mean, this is, you know, this, this in some ways was, you know, almost a surprising finding for us, you know, as, as folks who are coming at this from, you know, from DC and from the federal level, you know, supporting, um, supporting federal decision-making, you know, it, because of the challenges in coming up with programs that work here, you know, the likelihood of, you know, what works in, you know, a big city in the, in the, in the West, you know, versus, uh, you know, a semi-rural or suburban area in the East, you know, looking exactly the same is very low. 
Um, you know, there is no cookie cutter approach to doing this. Um, you know, in one of those areas, it might be just fine for the police to, you know, be at the center of this kind of intervention program because there's a really good relationship between the community and their and their local law enforcement. In another area, you know, people might not be comfortable with the police being there at all. But I can tell you that across most of the areas that we went to, there was discomfort with the federal government sort of being the primary actor for things like intervention, that, you know, that most sort of sensitive, you know, kind of middle phase of, you know, sort of stepping in for somebody who, who looks like they're on the path to doing something, you know, serious, um, but hasn't yet. And, you know, there's a lot of reasons for that. Um, you know, I, you know, goes back to sort of our, our federal system and the fact that, you know, uh, separation of powers from, you know, the federal level versus states and localities is an important part of our country. But, you know, it also has to do with, you know, kind of the, the perspective about, you know, what the, you know, the goals of, you know, organizations like federal law enforcement versus federal social services agencies versus, you know, organizations like DHS and how they, you know, sort of create additional tensions with, you know, the way that different localities might want to approach this problem. And so really what, what the message that we got was, um, you know, the federal government needed to figure out how to enable this um, because from any given locality, you know, sort of terrorism is one problem among many. Um, you know, so we had, we had places who, 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 uh, you know, sort of teed up our discussion with, well, terrorism is important, but, you know, we have a lot of people sort of being killed in the opioids epidemic. We have, you know, sort of other crime related issues, just thinking in the, in the law enforcement space, we have other, you know, sort of public health challenges. And so one of the messages was, you know, the federal government needs to support enabling others to, 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 to prioritize this in some ways because, um, you know, because of the, the, there can be differences in, in views about how important, you know, terrorism prevention is, you know, at different levels of government. But the other is, is you know, figuring out how to, how, to, how to support and fund these in a, in a sustainable way. Um, you know, and that was a, the role where, you know, places that, you know, said, you know, state and local budgets had still been, you know, we're still in some ways getting over the financial crisis, even many years later. Um, and, you know, local funding hadn't, you know, sort of fed back into all of the, you know, sort of relevant programs here that um, the federal support really was something that was important, um, even if it was somewhat complicated. Throughout the book, you talk about design challenges, and these are really some difficult public policy conundrums that need to be solved if, if terrorism prevention will be effective. And one of the challenges you highlight is the relatively low rate of terrorist attacks in U.S. that are also geographically dispersed. How did this challenge present itself in your research and what recommendations did you develop to help address this challenge? Yeah, the, the, the design challenges that sort of came out of and these were mostly things that came out of our discussions with really the, the folks who would be implementing these programs at the at the local level um, really, you know, highlight how tough a policy area this is. I mean, the, the one that you cite about, you know, uh, radicalization rates. So, you know, we went to that went to data, um, you know, fortunately, in the United States, we have 
you know, a relatively low number of, you know, actual terrorist incidents. And, you know, for this, we relied on, on, on data from the University of Maryland, who, who has kept a terrorism database here. So, you know, the number of terrorist incidents in the United States are in the, in the tens, um, you know, sort of each year, although they've been somewhat higher in recent years. Um, and the same thing is true. They, they keep a separate database of, you know, incidents of radicalization that haven't progressed all the way to terrorist incidents. You know, and there we're talking about, you know, in the low hundreds. Um, you know, I, I, I think the number in, in you know, one of the, uh, the, the recent years was, you know, between 150 and 200. Yeah, so when you add all those up and think, you know, sort of for the whole country, you know, that, that's a worrisome number. Um, but then when you think about the fact that we've got 50 states um, and those events, you know, while not being evenly spread across the 50 states are 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 spread. Um, you know, there, there weren't events in, in, in every state, um, but there were events in most states. And so, you know, when you divide those by 50, um, even for, you know, incidents of radicalization, you're talking about, you know, four or five a year. Um, you know, and so any given area, you know, even a, a large city is likely only going to have, you know, a handful of, of people who, you know, intervention would be warranted. I mean, there, there may be a few more because, of course, you know, the, the, the way that this data is, you know, is captured, there, there, there are probably individuals who, if you knew about them, you would intervene. But, you know, it's not 100 times that. And so thinking about a, 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 a city, having a specific, you know, terrorism intervention program to respond to maybe, you know, five, call it 10 people each year is really, a, 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 that's a hard practical problem. And you're talking about putting capabilities in place, having staff ready. So when somebody picks up the phone and calls and says, oh, we have a student who we're concerned about, you know, they can, they can move quickly. Um, it, sustaining that is, is, a, is, is a difficult sort of logistical challenge. And so the, the, the solution to that um, you know, which is, you know, this is probably one of the design challenges where um, there was a, a more clear solution is, is that the areas that have programs have actually built those intervention programs into more general um, programs intended to, to respond to broader threats of violence. So you know, I mentioned earlier that there's some commonality with um, you know, school violence. And so in one of the areas, they, they had actually started with a, a program that they had already had in place um, that was designed for responding to individuals who look like they might be, you know, future school shooters or, you know, folks who, you know, were very problematic bullies and, and, and things like that. And so they then said, okay, what do we need to add to this such that if we have somebody who, you know, were of concern, you know, not being violent because, you know, of their school experience, but being violent for ideological reasons, you know, we can, we can respond to them with, you know, sort of the same palette of, of capability. And, and so by doing that, you, 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 you sort of be able to keep capability warm to respond to, you know, individuals of potential terrorist concern, because it's, it's also being, you know, used for other purposes as well. So this was sort of a, one of our messages, um, you know, that we that we got loud and clear, and this was this was loud and clear both from you know law enforcement and and you know social services agencies, that you know building this into existing programs, um, you know, was a was a, a much more practical, and that was actually the source of you know sort of the, the term practical terrorism prevention 
in the in the title of the book, um, you know, a much more practical way to do this and to be able to sustain it over the long term. Because even if you built the best program, you know, possible in an area, you know, if it if it ran out of funding and 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 ended before you know it was needed, you know, you wouldn't get any benefit back. But many of the other design challenges that you know sort of are included in the book, you know, are in, in some ways sort of naughtier than that, and 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 there are other things that kind of make this a, a tough area to negotiate. I mean, some of which we've alluded to already in terms of you know sorting out law enforcement's responsibilities and you know social services responsibilities and community concerns in these programs too. So you talked about the occurrence of attacks. Could you speak to the perception of risk in the U.S. surrounding terrorist attacks and how it relates to the actual occurrence of attacks? Yeah, certainly. This is this is a, a, a an issue that is really important for you know shaping the ability to do you know sort of community based intervention and these sort of more you know sort of collaborative interventions for for terrorism risk. I mean. Probably, you know, uh, and understandably, um, you know, shaped by very large scale events like 9-11, you know, we have, uh, you know, a a, a very heightened sort of national uh, sort of risk perception related to terrorism. Um, You know, as I mentioned, we have a relatively low rate of actual attacks in a year, you know, so you know, if you're if you're somebody like an actuary, you know, who who who's who's uh, you know sort of job it is to sort of compare you know different ways Americans can you know be injured or killed, you know, sort of there there are many other you know sort of things I mentioned the opioid epidemic that that claim a lot more lives than terrorism does, but we still you know we sort of have this focus on terrorism and we have you know sort of a we really prioritize you know trying to prevent you know, as many terrorist attacks as we can, ideally all of them. So why is that important? You know, okay, you know, so far that, you know, that sounds reasonable. Okay, this is something that we can prevent. You know, why, why, would, why would it be a bad thing that we're very, very focused on prevention here? Part of, part of the reason why that complicates things is because it, it, it sort of sends you down a path where it's hard to sort of take risks on a community-based intervention or a, or a more counseling-based approach to somebody who looks like they might be a threat of future terrorist violence, but may or may not be. Um, it, it ups the, the pressure on law enforcement. You know, we had law enforcement folks that we, that we interviewed who sort of said, well, you know, look, we, you know, we're, we're smart people. We understand, you know, sort of where terrorism falls in, in, you know, the overall crime space and in the overall sort of space of different risks. But, you know, the, the focus is so much on prevention that, you know, if we, if we referred somebody to a counseling program, you know, rather than investigating them and potentially arresting them, and they went on to carry out an attack, you know, we would, you know, the, the, you know, the, the price of that politically and organizationally would be huge. Um, you know, and, and so the, the, the focus on prevention sort of ups the stakes for law enforcement in a way that makes it tough for them to trust intervention because, you know, their responsibility is to prevent, you know, protect public safety. And so, you, you know, you, you sort of, it's not incorrect. You know, it's, it's just something that, you know, that, that sort of increases the pressure here. Whereas if we, you know, weren't as risk averse about terrorism, it would be easier to sort of take the risk on, you know, sending an individual 
to counseling. Uh, you know, as one person put it, you know, sort of wrapping them in services to address their potential risk, as opposed to, you know, sort of wrapping them in, in you know, in stone and steel by putting them in, in jail. Um, because we'd, we'd be less sensitive if that counseling was perfect, because it's, it's unlikely to be. Um, you know, there will, there will always be, um, you know, things that don't work, you know, folks who, you know, continue down a path. Um, but, you know, it's challenging because that risk aversion and that pressure on law enforcement, you know, starts to, you know, reduce the space of options that we have here and, and reduce the, you know, sort of, you know, what's possible, which then ironically enough sort of defaults to, you know, us responding to these issues, you know, in a traditional criminal justice way more often which, you know, is part of what causes, you know, community and civil society concerns about, you know, intervention resulting in people being, you know, arrested and put in jail. And so we sort of end up in kind of this, um, you know, kind of, uh, you know, do loop that, you know, is, is going towards, you know, more expensive and, and, and less effective public policy approaches rather than taking advantage of, you know, some of the things that counseling-based approaches and, 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 and sort of more um, collaborative and multidisciplinary approaches could get us. There's a really insightful point about how community-based services can reduce that pressure on law enforcement in the book. I'll read a couple of lines here where you say, continued contact between the at-risk individuals and program staff also means that there will be people in positions to assess their progress, almost certainly based on much better and more nuanced understanding of their circumstances and behavior than what is available to a law enforcement investigator. That relationship transforms what was a single high stakes decision into a stream of decision opportunities where action can be taken if concern about their behavior increases rather than fades away over time. And this this type of relationship speaks to the importance of trust between individuals involved in these interventions. Knowing that these types of community-based services can be effective what does your research say about the sustainability of these services, given the financial constraints that many of these providers experience? That is a really interesting. I mean, it, it was a great point. I mean, this was something you know that came out of you know conversations with law enforcement. I mean, I, I, I do a lot of work on on the criminal justice side, and you know, I have a, a great deal of you know sort of appreciation for the difficulty of that decision. So you know, faced with somebody who you know, looks like they might be a future terrorist, it is a very high stakes decision for, you know, law enforcement to say, well, you know, we're not going to continue this investigation. On the other hand, you know, if they are put into a program and, you know, have counseling every week and, you know, or multiple different kinds of counseling every week, you know, there's a, there's a, you know, sort of a, a, a relationship building piece there where, you know, that, that counselor, if they are well-trained, um, you know, and if they are, you know, sort of both sensitized to the individual's needs and to the public safety, you know, sort of issues, you know, we'll be making a string of judgments and sort of reduce the stakes of that decision. Um, and if the person looks like they're continuing to go, you know, sort of off in a direction, um, you know, that's dangerous, you know, they can pick up the phone and, um, and, 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 and call the police. Of course, that always works better when, you know, the police are, you know, sort of plugged in enough to that intervention that kind of everybody has a common understanding of, you know, kind of what sorts of things are a concern. Um, you know, so so there's there's a greater probability of, you know, sort of, you know, sort of asking for help 
um, you know, at the right time um, and limiting the, the chance that, um, you know, somebody who, you know, intervention is not working for, you know, goes on to to stage a to stage a to stage an attack or or or, or some other activity, you know, attempt to travel to a you know a foreign a foreign uh, area of conflict. But you know that uh, building that and keeping you know sort of those relationships going are really kind of the challenge for sustainability that you mentioned. Because you know the the closer law enforcement is linked to these, the more there can be concern about whether you know this really is a program that's intended to intervene and help people or whether it's a program where you know a, a large percentage of people are are just going to be referred to law enforcement um you know which will be caustic to you know sort of trust and to the to the willingness of of you know these different um entities to continue to participate because it really is a a situation where um, you know, everybody needs to participate and be willing to be at the table for it to work, um, you know, and to work, you know, at the, at the highest level of effectiveness, because, you know, the, the, the moment sort of things start falling apart, um, you know, partners stop being willing to participate, which means that the capability they brought to the table, whether it's, you know, a particular kind of counseling or a particular connection into the community or the religious community and so on, you know, is no longer, you know, kind of in the toolbox for that group to, to respond. And as a result, their options get, you know, narrower and narrower. Um, the issue of funding is a challenge here. Um, you know, I, 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 again, you know, sort of going back to that design challenge about low rates of, of radicalization and the fact that states and localities have a lot of other things to, you know, keep track of um, and manage, um, you know, sort of the level of funding, um, you know, for this, um, you know, kind of policy area at the local level has been very limited. I mean, so we, in, in our interviews at the state and local level, even, even programs that, you know, are, are functioning well, um, you know, and have capabilities to do this sort of describe, you know, kind of their successes as fragile, um, you know, because, uh, you know, maintaining funding over time, you know, in, in, in sort of competition with other priorities at the local level, um, you know, is, is difficult. And there were, there were, there were some that actually sort of posed the question that, you know, they, you know, if things don't shift for them, they might end up having to, you know, sort of close up shop. Of course, you know, sort of the, in many policy areas, the, the answer there, um, you know, that you would jump to would be, oh, well, okay. You know, if this is something that's important to the federal government, you know, the federal government can, can, can fund, you know, this activity. And that, that, that's true. Um, but that's also complicated. So the, the several years ago, the, the federal government had a, a, a specific grant program that was funding um, early, you know, sort of early stage state and local and non-governmental uh, organization efforts in the countering violent extremism space. So this was when, when that terminology was still being used. And for some organizations, taking money from the federal government, um, you know, for countering violent extremism, for something that was terrorism focused, um, became very controversial. Um, and in fact, uh, you know, a small number of, of folks who had even been um, awarded, you know, grants in this area decided that they couldn't take them because, um, you know, sort of the, the, the pushback from, you know, sort of members of their co uh, you know, community or their other constituencies, um, you know, was such that, you know, there was concern that uh, they wouldn't be able to pursue their other um, you know, sort of missions if they were labeled as participating in a, in a security, terrorism prevention, countering violent extremism activity, which, 
you know, which pulls against sort of what I just said, you know, as, as you know, sort of the, the goal of integrating these into other more general activities. You know, if you have a public health agency that's concerned if they take funding that's labeled terrorism prevention, people are no longer going to be willing to participate in their programs for, you know, childhood disease prevention or, you know, other public health interventions, um, you know, that that's a problem. You know, this isn't the only mission for 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 all of these organizations. Um, and so that that sort of issue of sort of funding stigma and, 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 and sorting out how to, you know, fund these sustainably, you know, given the, you know, sort of the past controversy and, and quite frankly, the, the legitimate sensitivity of, of, of these programs um, is something that's a that, that's a big challenge. There's a lot of talk in terrorism literature about the pathway to radicalization and looking at people as they move up that ladder towards extremist ideology. This book also looks at people who have been convicted of performing violent acts or acts of terrorism and how to prevent recidivism. Can you tell us more about your work on that? We, we wanted to make sure that we were sort of addressing the full range of, of, of terrorism prevention policies here. And the, 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 the late stage elements focused on people who have you know, invo- been involved in the criminal justice system you know, is really important. So Post 9-11, um, you know, one of our national responses was a, a very traditional criminal justice response to terrorism risks. So, so a significant number of individuals were incarcerated for, you know, things like material support to, you know, Al-Qaeda and, and eventually, you know, ISIL and, and, and uh, you know, other foreign groups. And, you know, those individuals are coming to the end of their sentences. Um, you know, that was actually one of the you know, initial points that we got. Um, from a number of our different interviewees is that, you know, there, there actually is sort of a, a population of people that are, are moving towards release right now. And there's uncertainty about, you know, sort of whether just being incarcerated is de-radicalizing or radicalizing. Um, there isn't a whole lot of, of good data there. You know, we heard sort of anecdotal arguments from um, you know, some people that, you know, okay, they, they had talked to individuals who had been put in, uh, into prison for, you know, terrorism related offenses and the time that they spent there and, you know, their personal reflection and, you know, what they were involved in, um, you know, while they were inside the, the correctional system had led them to question, you know, why they had done what they'd done. And, you know, it clearly they were de-radicalized. And we had other people who sort of, you know, sort of raised the question whether, you know, being incarcerated would, you know, produce somebody who was, you know, sort of more, um, you know, intensely radicalized at the end than, than, than before. I, I'm quite sure that there can be examples on, you know, for individuals on either side of that. And, you know, we didn't get a, a good answer, you know, sort of writ large, which then raises the question about, OK, what programming are we giving to individuals while they are in prison um, with the goal of, of helping uh, de-radicalize uh, as opposed to intensify radicalization. And then when they are released, you know, what programming, you know, exists in the community corrections context. So probation, parole, you know, the, the supervised release um, that most of these individuals will be released into um, to help ensure that they don't, you know, return to, to violence or return to support for extremism. And the, the answers that we got here is that, the, you know, there are certainly things that are being done. Um, you know, that uh, generally they were described to us as sort of more early stage concerns, whether we had the capacity, um, particularly on the community correction side for, for the individuals who are going to be, um, you know, being released in the near term. Um, but, 
you know, there's a, you know, this is a piece of the puzzle that, you know, if we are going to use, you know, sort of traditional criminal justice tools of, you know, arrest and, and prosecution, and, and, and those will always be part of the picture, you know, the terrorism prevention uh, policies are a complement to those, not a, not a full replacement for them. Having this piece of, you know, sort of dealing with individuals when, you know, they're returning to society after their, their time in custody you know, is an important piece to make sure that, you know, we, we don't end up just sort of racking up costs by having, you know, rearresting the same people over and over again. So finally, if you had to pick three things that would move the needle on terrorism prevention in the U.S., what would those be? So the, sort of the three sort of big, you know, kind of headlines that we, we pulled out of, out of our work at the end, you know, first was this funding issue. You know, I, I talked about the fact that you know, some of these programs, you know, even the successful ones sort of view themselves as fragile and, you know, they're not necessarily the top priority of, you know, sort of their state and local government and probably shouldn't be the top priority of their state and local government. And so figuring out how to support those through federal funding is a is a big challenge here and something that needs to be solved. Um, you know, in, in many policy areas, that would be an easy sell, you know, write a check. Um, but here it's figuring out how you know, to, um, you know, in the words of one of the, the social services agencies, you know, how to give them funding without requiring them to label themselves as security programs by taking the funding. And one of the things that people talked about was broadening the involvement of, uh, you know, federal um, sort of social services side agencies, you know, whether that's Department of Health and Human Services, um, Department of Education, Department of Labor, sort of getting them more substantially and publicly involved with supporting things related to, um, you know, terrorism prevention and, and, and responding to concerns about radicalization in their, you know, sort of community resilience programs and more general violence prevention programs. Generalizing this within violence prevention was you know, sort of another suggestion in that area as well. The second um, was the value of having locally based federal personnel um, spread across the country to sort of be the focal point for this um, policy area in their locality. So for a while, DHS had a group of these sort of federal field personnel, some of whom were, were DHS employees, some of whom were you know, sort of employed under contract who were former federal people. These were folks who you know, lived in a city and, you know, were the, the, the central point of contact for, um, you know, asking questions, trying to convene groups at, a, at the table and so on. And for an, a policy area where, um, you know, trust is important, where concerns about, you know, the federal government's role and what their intent is or a big barrier, having somebody locally, you know, who's a, a human face to talk to. Um, is is very valuable. I mean, you know, these are things where, you know, it, it takes a lot of talking to sort of figure out models that work, to get people past, um, you know, sort of past levels of mistrust and concern. And, you know, you know, people trust people. They don't so much trust organizations. And so this, this was a, you know, sort of revitalizing that effort, you know, sort of getting, you know, federal field personnel back out um, in cities around this issue was was seemed like a a, a really good option. The, uh, the 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 level of focus on terrorism prevention in the cities that had had really good federal field personnel um, versus ones that hadn't was was striking in our in our visits. And then the third is is you know sort of 
a, a, you know, almost a, a meta level action, which is, you know, really making sure that terrorism prevention efforts cover all the threats, you know, all the sources of threats of ideological violence. Um, you know, and so, you know, even back to the start of combating violent extremism in the in the United States, there was a, a lot of you know sort of concerns raised that you know even though the federal government said that you know it they were covering all threats, you know, really the focus was on the Muslim community. Um, you know, and this is you know sort of goes back to you know sort of 2015 and 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 even before, um, you know, where where community organizations had that concern, and that was part of what you know, undermined, um, you know, their trust in what, you know, these programs were doing. So, you know, the, the, even, even, you know, sort of the policy statement said, you know, everything was going on, but then all the outreach, you know, the sort of paraphrasing things that folks said, you know, all the outreach was then to the Muslim community and, and so on. And there's, there's a lot of, you know, sort of reasons why things like that evolved, um, where, you know, sort of perceptions were, were shaped by, you know, what was going on even if it wasn't necessarily what was intended. But you know, really the, the bottom line was, is, you know, for these efforts to be credible, you know, they've got to cover all sources of violence, not just in word, but in deed, um, and, uh, and, 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 and make that clear in the way that the programs are done. Well, Brian, we've taken up a lot of your time. Before we let you go, how has this book been received? I have been, you know, really encouraged in, in, you know, how this has been received across, you know, across a wide range of, of, of groups. I mean, DHS, um, you know, was very uh, positive about our findings. Uh, in fact, they actually uh, uh, did the, their own release of the report um, publicly um, uh, where uh, they, they presented it and its, its major findings. Um, you know, they've recently uh, restructured their uh, office. Uh, focused on this and, and included um, violence, uh, you know, targeted violence prevention uh, in the scope of that office. So, you know, sort of a, a change that, you know, is consistent with, um, you know, some of the findings that we've had. I briefed it on Capitol Hill um, and, you know, had a, a really engaged audience, you know, asking good questions, uh, you know, not just about, um, you know, sort of what we've spent on it, but, you know, sort of the different, you know, focuses of policy and, and ways that we could go. So, I'm I'm really encouraged, um, you know, in a in a in a very you know sort of controversial policy area in a you know in a in a in a sort of a difficult political environment. I think there are things that you know sort of could be done here um, that uh, you know would 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 give us more options for responding, um, you know, to the risk of ideological violence. You know, other than you know sort of standard you know sort of law enforcement approaches. So I. I've really been very pleased with how it's been received. Well, thank you for being on the show today. Thank you very much. I really appreciate it. Practical Terrorism Prevention, Reexamining U.S. National Approaches to Addressing the Threat of Ideologically Motivated Violence by Brian Jackson, Ashley Rhodes, Jordan Reimer, Natasha Lander, Catherine Costello, and Sina Begley is available now from the Rand Corporation. Thanks for listening to New Books and National Security a podcast channel on the New Books Network.